Good to see you tonight. I uh, trust that you're going to ha- have input with me tonight, right? Right? Especially those of you in the back, you know, I especially want your input. Anyway, just teasing you a little. Uh, okay, I guess I need my Bible up here if we're going to do this. We're in Philippians tonight, Philippians chapter 2, and we are in a most interesting section, one of the most profound sections in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you for your word now, and uh, the word of God shall last forever. Uh, Few things are eternal, the souls of people, the word of God, uh, angels, etc. But uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, that which is lasting. Uh, that which makes a difference for all eternity, the Word of God impacting our lives. So, Lord, minister to our hearts as we study together. Pray for the Iwana Youth Group Ministries ongoing as well, that they would be used of you effectively this evening. And the Word of God would go forth with power in all of our ministries uh, to the glory of yourself. We commit ourselves and our evening to you now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we are in Philippians. And here again, we note the theme is rejoice or joy. Uh, rejoice in the Lord. We're working our way through salutation, opening prayer, rejoicing in Christ our life, rejoicing in Christ our example, as uh, we find ourselves here in chapter 2. Paul was very excited about the church at Philippi. They had been partners with him from the very day they got saved. They were partners with him in the ministry. He's writing a thank you letter for their support, and he's also writing to update them in terms of uh, his own uh, apostolic ministry. And he shares with them that even though he's in prison, it has not meant the end of his ministry. In fact, the furtherance of the gospel is even continuing on in the context of his jail ministry. So that had to be a great encouragement. He's very thankful for them as he starts out, you know, that verse 3. Maybe you've written this on a card. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Uh, I mean, that's that's a neat thought, isn't it? I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Maybe you can't write it to everybody, but, uh, you know, anyway... Uh, he was very thankful for them. But he has a little bit of a concern, as we are introduced to at the end of chapter 1, and he exhorts them uh, to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel. And really, one of the main emphasis he has as he continues on, it seems there's a, there's a little bit of tension going on. You've got a couple of women fighting in the church. There's some tensions that are going on behind the scenes in the church. And although he's very appreciative of them and thankful for them, He has a little concern. And uh, largely, uh, unity is about humility. And that's where he goes, uh, which sets the stage for the the greatest example of humility in the history of the world, which is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we find here in chapter 2. Note uh, here what I say. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 actually goes together as a unit. We're just going to look at half the unit tonight. The text is known as one of the four great Christological passages in the New Testament, the others being John 1, Colossians 1, also 2, put 1 and 2 together there, Hebrews chapter 1. Centered in uh, Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8 text is the famous kenosis self-emptying passage as we find in verse 7 that we will look at tonight. Many believe that 2, 5 through 11 was originally a poem or a hymn that Paul adapted for his purposes here. It stresses two key points the humiliation of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. To say, tonight we're going to consider the humiliation of Christ, and uh, Lord willing, next time the exaltation. 
Well, uh, let's get into it. Um, who wants to read verse 5? We'll take them one verse at a time here. Who wants to read verse 5? Philippians chapter 2. Yeah, Vince. <clears throat> verse 5. Okay, so he's addressing the mind. You know, everything in life starts with the mind, really. Um, the outworking of life is really what's uh, an outworking of what's going on in the mind. And uh, <clears throat> the mind here relates to the attitude, uh, the disposition. And it looks back to what he's already brought out in the first four verses there. Um, you know, he talks about uh, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy, verse 1. Um, being like-minded, having the same love, uh, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Uh, let each of you, verse 4, look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. So it's looking back uh, to what he's already said, but it's also looking forward uh, to the example of Christ. So sandwiched right in there, we've got this emphasis on uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Proper thinking is key uh, because, as I say, uh, as you think, uh, so you do. Uh, what goes on in your heart comes out in your, your life. And so humble thinking really is very key to biblical unity. And I think uh, where you have unity, you're going to, behind it, there is some humility that's going on there. Uh, where you have disunity, uh, you have pride. Pride tends towards disunity. So there's a collision of pride going on in here somewhere. Uh, so let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think like Jesus and therefore walk like Jesus. Now, uh, this idea uh, of Jesus Christ in humility was really foreign to what the Jews thought about their coming Messiah. The concept of humility defining the Messiah was foreign to the Jews. They did not anticipate a humble Messiah necessarily. They expected the Messiah to come as a conquering, reigning, honored uh, military monarch. Expected him to emerge from a, a very prominent family with much fanfare. He undoubtedly would receive the greatest education, have countless assistance at his beck and call. He'd be pampered in every way imaginable. In their minds, this was synonymous with, with being the Messiah. You do understand the, the apostles were, you know, and even Judas, all excited about following Christ because he's going to usher in the kingdom, right? We're going to have a front row seat here in the kingdom. And they're not thinking, hey, we're going to wash people's feet. I mean, that's the last thing on their mind. Uh, they're thinking, king, kingdom, and we're right here. We're right first in line to be greatest in the kingdom. But uh, that was wrong thinking. That uh, was wrong thinking. It was not God's way. The Messiah was born in the humblest of contexts, to the humblest of families, in the humblest of places. I mean, really, uh, Nazareth was a place of derision. To be called a, a Nazarite is, is like a put-down. Uh, that's where he comes from. The first 30 years of his life are very unexceptional. Uh, he grew up in a common family, learned a common trade as a carpenter, working with his hands. The apostles were mostly common men with little educational skills. Perhaps Matthew is accepted. Jesus, instead of coming on the scene with a serve-me attitude, came to serve he came with a humble attitude of self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and selfless love. The highest of all became the lowest of all. If you want to know what true humility looks like, look at Christ. And that's where he takes us in our study here uh, this evening. Uh, that was a hard lesson for the disciples. I mean, on the way towards the cross, as they're on their way, they're having an argument. And you know what they're arguing about, right? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. 
And Judas, as he's thinking about all this talk about the cross, is thinking, you know, I think I should probably get out of it what I can. Uh, you know, this, thing, this isn't going the direction I was planning. Uh, I'm going to get my, a few shekels out of it if I can and, hey, make the most of it. Uh, so they, they were not thinking in terms of uh, uh, humility here. In contrast, Christ was. Uh, the night before he's crucified, what's he do? Uh, he takes the, the basin and the towel and goes around and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And it was so out of character of what they expected of, of the Lord. I mean, Peter's like, far be it from you, Lord. This is just, just not right. You're not going to wash my feet. <laughs> of course, we know how the story goes, right? Christ says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Well, then wash my whole, my whole self here. So uh, hard lesson uh, to think like Jesus, uh, which thinks of others first, which puts self down and puts others before self. Uh, that's humility. That was ultimately illustrated in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. It begins with the mind. It's how do we think. It's a whole way of thinking, a Christ-like way of thinking, uh, which is foreign to way, the way we normally think as people. We normally think of not self-last, but self-first. And so he's, he's talking about a mindset here uh, that was in Christ Jesus. All right, any other thoughts? Okay, let's uh, have somebody read verse 6. Who wants to read verse 6? Yeah, Dave? Okay. <clears throat> He's describing the person of Christ and what it meant for Christ to come in this role of servant that he came in. Uh, who being in the form of God, he's really emphasizing what, what Jesus always was, which he was in the in the form of God, in, in the role of God. Uh, this is uh, what Jesus was before his incarnation. It's what he, is, he always has been. It's what he is now. Uh, it, he was in the form of God. Uh, note my slide here on the form of God. The word here is the Greek word morph. Uh, it refers to the essential character of something that is unchanging. It refers to the basic essence, inner character, or nature that is outwardly manifested refers to the manifestation of Jesus as God in, in, in all eternity past. This was the form he was in, in the form of God. Uh, throughout all eternity, it, it had been openly manifested who Jesus really is. And that is uh, the fact that he is eternal God. Uh, this, this is his form, if you will. This is his eternal uh, essence. So before he became a man, he had the essence, uh, the form of God. Being in the form of God, that was who he is. And being in that form, it says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is the mindset of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was willing to humble himself. He was, he was willing to let go of the glory. Um, in terms of uh, what this is talking about, MacArthur's got a statement here. The incarnation, uh, Jesus becoming a man, is the central miracle of Christianity the most grand and wonderful of all the things that God has ever done. Anybody want to challenge that? <laughs> I mean, uh, he's done some pretty other wonderful things, right? The most grand and wonderful of all the things that God has ever done. Um, you know, creation's a pretty big deal, right? Creating everything out of nothing. Uh, how about the cross? Pretty big thing. Uh, what Jesus did there on the cross. Uh, how about the resurrection? I was going to ask you, how do you 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know that you all ultimately do. I think he's wanting to make a, a grandiose statement here, which I get. It, it, was a, it was a huge, huge thing for Jesus Christ, the eternal God, to become a man. And that's, that's kind of the point. You know, sometimes we speak in hyperbole terms. I think you kind of got a little bit of that going here. Some other great things. How do you, how do you rate them? Yeah, you're going to say something? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, so, and one of the things that we want that for Jesus to be a substitute, uh, he had to become one of us. Right. Uh, you know, that's what we have in this chapter. That's what I'm actually doing the teaching for. You know, for him to take a place. Yeah. He had to become one of us. And yeah. Then, another thing was that he had to be able to relate to us. Right. So he experienced humanity. Right. No, no. He, he gets one as a man, you know, as the God-man in, in his exaltation. But yeah, this was demotion in that sense. Uh, a great, great humbling. Uh, to think that the eternal God becomes one of us. Uh, it really is a, an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, Gramacki's also got a note here. Robert Gramacki says, uh, The verb consider uh, looks at a logical time in the past when God the Son made a decisive resolution to surrender the divine prerogative to be, uh, to be served. He surrendered that divine prerogative to be served in order to serve the human race as its Savior. And so this is really where this is going here ultimately. Christ made this decision uh, because he wanted to become, was willing to become the savior of the world. Interesting language here. Uh, did not consider it robbery. Does anybody else have a different translation there? Uh, Dave, what did yours say? Did yours say that? Uh, in verse uh, 6, uh, when it says, huh, what's that? Yeah? Well, you got the same translation. Yeah, Austin? Yeah, that's really the idea here. Um, I think I've got a slide on this too. Uh, the word translated robbery here originally meant something seized by robbery. And so you can see why they, where they get that. Something clutched, embraced, held tightly or prized. It's the idea of something grasped or held onto. In other words, Jesus did not consider this something uh, to be held onto in view of, of the mission. He was, he was willing to let go of that status that he knew as being in the form of God for all eternity. Uh, he did not consider it something to be held on to. He was, in other words, he was willing to let it go. And then it, con- it continues here, did not consider it robbery, a thing to be held on, to be equal with God. He's not talking about his essence. He's talking about uh, the status uh, that he knew in the form of God. By the way, note that language in the form of God and equal with God. Uh, the idea here of equal with God is that he is exactly equal with God, uh, on the very same level with God. And so here's the idea. The idea here is that Jesus assumed the attitude of not holding on to all the rights, high position, privilege, status, and glory that were his as God in all eternity past. He was willing to let all of that go for a time and be humbled. He refused selfishly to, to cling to the position of glory that he knew for all eternity as God. He was willing to let go of these divine privileges 
that he, as God, had always known. He did not forcibly retain these realities. So this is all kind of descriptive of what it means to uh, humble yourself. And he, and he was willing to do that. Uh, one more slide here. Uh, he did not, this is Walver, John Walver. He did not hold the outer manifestation of his deity as a treasure that had to be grasped and retained. Christ in his incarnation did not concern himself with retaining the outer manifestation of deity which he had prior to his birth. Uh, my statement, he, f- he fully retained his deity, but the outward manifestation of it became veiled in humanity and humility. And Henry Morris says he exchanged the outward form of God for the outward form of man. I think that's a lot what we're talking about here is, uh, um, you know, his outward appearance. And he will go on and talk about this as we get into the next verse. Okay, but note that language here. Being in the form of God, equal with God, he was willing to let go of that status. Not his deity, but that outward manifestation uh, of his glory that he knew with the Father from, from all eternity. All right, any other input here? Okay, let's go on. Let's have somebody read verse 7. Who wants to read verse 7 for us? Yeah, Dale? Thank you. So here we come to that uh, famous uh, kenosis verse uh, where it talks about here, uh, but made himself as no reputation. This is the kenosis phrase in theology. And it goes hand in hand with with, uh, not holding on to his own exalted status as equal with God, as we saw back here in verse 6. Uh, made himself of no reputation is really two Greek words, uh, literally emptied himself, emptied himself. We said, well, what does this really mean that he, uh, he emptied himself? Uh, made himself of no reputation, uh, literally emptied himself. Well, uh, only one legitimate idea here, but note uh, we work our way through it here. Number one, it cannot mean he gave up his deity, as some have claimed. The very fact that he was in the form of God and therefore equal with God by very definition means he cannot cease from being God. God cannot become less than what he is. He is immutable, meaning unchanging. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchanging. All orthodox and reputable theologians agree this does not mean that he gave up his deity. All four Gospels emphatically show this to be the case in the claims of Jesus Christ, the gospel of John's theme is the deity of Christ, right? You know John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Builds the climax, uh, climactic illustration, doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God uh, in, in the resurrection. So, so that does not change. So obviously it does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity. Uh, he continued to be God. Uh, another view... Others have asserted this means that he gave up his divine attributes, such as omnipresence, omniscience, or omnipotence, omniscience, etc. However, on occasion in his earthly ministry, we see the expression of these very attributes. When Jesus knows what's in the hearts of people, that's omniscience. When Jesus calms the raging sea, that is omnipotence on display. Uh, so much so that what did the disciples do when he calms the sea? Well, they came and they worshipped him. 
which is something that you only do in reference to God, recognizing his deity uh, shining through there. So it's, uh, it's not that he ceased to be God. It's not that he completely uh, did away with his attributes uh, of deity. Uh, the third view is really the correct view. The correct view is that Jesus, in assuming the humble role of a servant, set aside the independent use of his divine attributes and the outward glory he knew as God before coming to earth. He did not empty himself of his deity, but only the outward manifestation of it, according to his own prerogative. In his position of humility, Christ never did his own thing. Rather, he constantly subjected himself to the will of the Father and went through all uh, that the Father had for him to do. And so he is the perfect representative of the human race. In fact, uh, what, is, what does the Bible call Jesus? I mean, we've got the first Adam, right? And Christ is the second Adam. And he did what the first Adam failed to do, and that is he perfectly uh, fulfilled the mission that the Father gave for him to do. Uh, he did not fail. And so uh, when we talk about uh, this kenosis passage here, this self-emptying, uh, it's really that he set aside the independent use of his divine attributes and assumed, uh, assumed the humble role of a slave. Yeah. Yep. They won many times. <laughs> right. And so as a father, you restrain your abilities. Yep. So, so your kid can win. You can, you know, that, that idea. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, praise the Lord he did because, you know, no man can see God and live. <laughs> I mean, if his full glory was on display, it would have killed everybody, right? But, but here it went to the other direction to where I think he was seen as just a, a regular person. As, as we continue on, even in the verse here, uh, it says, uh, taking the form of a bond servant. Sometimes I wish the translators would have been just a little more literal. Uh, doulos is literally slave, right? Uh, taking uh, the form of a slave and not merely a bond servant, uh, not just a servant, even in, the, in uh, Isaiah, you know, we talk about those servant passages. Better be called the, the slave passages. Uh, the divine slave uh, is what Jesus Christ took that, that form on. Uh, that, uh, he took on that form. Uh, by the way, the word uh, form is the same word that we found in verse uh, 6, uh, being in the form of God. Now we find him in the form of a slave. Uh, he, he takes on the form of, of a slave. His uh, deity is veiled at this point. He didn't come on the scene as, as, as deity. He came on the scene as a slave. Uh, that was the, the form that he took. Uh, lowest position on the social ladder. Uh, by the way, it's the opposite of, of this idea of Lord. As we get to verse 11, uh, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, Lord's master over, sovereign authority. He didn't, he didn't come on the scene uh, looking like that. Uh, he took on uh, the nature of a slave. Uh, so note uh, my next slide here. <clears throat> it is obvious that he gave up the outer manifestation of deity, but the act of assuming, this is Walvert again, the act of assuming humanity in, in the form of a servant was superimposed upon his deity without taking away his divine attributes. He was like a king 
who temporarily puts on the garments of a peasant while at the same time remaining king. It's kind of what you were talking about, your illustration, just a little bit. Uh, Even though it was not outwardly apparent. So he set aside the open display of his deity and took on another form, that of a slave. The key idea here is one of addition, not subtraction. His incarnation was not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of, of humanity. And, and really putting himself in, in the role of, of humility in that, in that context. Okay, uh, and then finally, uh, verse 7 says, And coming in the likeness of men. This is interesting, coming in the likeness of men. <clears throat> now, he did become one of us, but he came in the likeness of men too. He didn't come in the likeness of God. I mean, it took his earthly ministry and those miracles that revealed who he was as the Messiah, according to the scriptures. But if you were to look at him, uh, his likeness was that of men. He looked like a man. You wouldn't say, oh, man, there he is, uh, the one with the halo over there. Uh, No, it didn't look like it. It looked like just a regular man. Uh, In fact, a very common one, very ordinary man. A slave came as a slave. A slave owned nothing. Everything he had, including his very life, belonged to his master. Jesus owned no land, no house, boat, jewels, business, or or horse. (laughs) House, horse. He had to borrow a donkey when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Had to borrow a a room for the Last Supper. He even buried in a borrowed grave. You you know you really don't have much when you have to borrow a grave, right? Uh, That's right. Uh, The highest person experienced the lowest position in society. Christ became a slave in order to serve. In fact, one whole section of Isaiah is called the servant section. As I say, it could probably better be called the slave section. Uh, MacArthur preached a message on you know, Isaiah 53 called the divine slave, uh, which prophetically looked ahead to the servant role that Christ would fulfill, in particular chapters 52, 53, end of chapter 52, uh, chapter 53. So, um, <clears throat> very ordinary uh, Jesus walked and talked like ordinary men. He grew and developed like other children. He became hungry, thirsty, tired. He felt sadness, experienced pain. Even his family and disciples did not recognize his deity, thinking he was only human. Not until after the resurrection <clears throat> did they really get it that he was the God-man. Of course, his enemies rejected his claims to be God, calling him a blasphemer, and, and it's easy to get on his critics, right, uh, for rejecting him. But even his own brothers did not believe in him till really after the resurrection. And again, as we uh, see here, uh, Jesus was a genuine man in the appearance of humanity, uh, but he was not merely a man. Uh, the emphasis in this phrase, in the likeness of men, is on his identity with mankind. Of course, he was a unique man. Uh, His conception was a miracle performed by God, resulting in the virgin birth and his being born without original sin. Jesus was fully God, or fully man, rather, but totally without sin. However, he did experience temptation in all things as we do, yet without sin. It was necessary for him to become a man so that he could be our representative and die for our sins. Adam was our representative in sin. Jesus is the second Adam who, as our representative, takes away sin. Man was responsible for sin. Man must pay for sin. But only the man, Jesus, who was without sin, qualified to pay for the sin of others. That was the goal in his coming. 
in his death he paid for, for the sin of all humanity. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's see here. Um, I think I've got one more slide here. Yeah, Hebrews 2.14, which is a scripture that shows this very truth here. Hebrews 2.14, and as much as the children have, be, have partaken of flesh and blood, that's us. We're flesh and blood humans. He himself likewise shared in the same. He too took upon flesh and blood. Well, why? Well, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In order to make the death payment, he had to become one of us, had to become human, which, which he was willing to do, humble himself uh, to that point. Okay, any other thoughts before we get into our final verse here? <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, Bill, yeah. On paper, they, they say it, you know. On paper, we would agree with them on the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Um, you know, it gets convoluted, though. And there's all kinds of conflicts as you go along, as there is in any idolatrous system, full of idolatry. You know, exalting Mary, really, which brings Jesus down, putting her, him really under Mary, in a sense, where he listens to his mother. Uh, so, yeah... How do you get there? Well, you don't if you're consistent with the Bible. Um, oh, it is. Oh, it is blasphemous. Well, the whole system's blasphemous. I mean, it's very evil, really, which is kind of amazing when you think about, you know, Christendom in, in total. The largest segment of it is Roman Catholicism, which is totally blasphemous. I mean, the, the whole mediating system, the whole priesthood, uh, Mary, the saints, Purgatory. I mean, it's all very uh, blasphemous, for sure. Yeah. Amen, brother. Well, amen. Well, that's it. Well, I could say the same thing, even growing up in a, in a Mennonite home where I was taught all the basics of the gospel. When I really got saved, I said, wow, Jesus is God. It was like, oh, man, I, I've been taught this by rote my whole life. Probably could have spouted it back to you, but I didn't really believe it, didn't really see it until I got saved. So, yeah, that's the whole nine yards for sure. All right, anyone else? Okay, let's uh, finish out here tonight with verse 8. Who wants to... Uh, Read verse 8 for us. Yeah, Mac. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay. Uh, real stress here. Uh, being found in appearance as a man, uh, relating to his external appearance. Uh, all of a sudden, here he is, looking just like a regular person, in the appearance of a man, perceived as a man. Uh, so much so, you know, he went back to his hometown early in his ministry, went back to Nazareth. And what did they do? They say, wow, we have the Messiah here. Oh, no. No, by the time it was, they, they wanted to throw him over the cliff, right? I mean, uh, they didn't appreciate him. Don't we know his family? Who's he thinking he is? You know, saying these wonderful things, quoting out of Isaiah like he's the Messiah, like he's the fulfillment. They didn't accept him at all. You know why? He didn't look like the Messiah. 
He looked like a regular person. I think if Jesus was sitting here tonight, we wouldn't walk over and say, oh boy, you're, you're obviously somebody special. I mean, if he came like he did the first time, we would just say, you know, yeah, you look pretty normal. You look pretty regular. You look pretty ordinary. I, I don't really see the Messiah here. Uh, that's how it was. He came so humble. Jesus was so humble, so much a man, that in fact people missed the reality behind his humanness. They recognized him as man on the basis of what they saw. Thus, Jesus suffered the humiliation. Really, this is humiliating when you're the eternal God. Suffered the humiliation of being considered a mere man. Now, if you are just a man, that is fine. But he was also God. So this was a major humiliation. And notice how they treated him. Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We were ashamed of the things he's saying about himself. He was despised. We did not esteem him. They didn't properly appreciate him at all. Being found in appearance as a man, that's how he appeared. Now we know from the whole of Scripture, he is much more than just a man, but that's how he appeared. In great humiliation, in great humility, being found in appearance as a man, what did he do there? Say, you know what? Uh, you guys ought to all recognize me for who I really am. Well, he kind of was saying that at certain points, but he humbled himself. That's the emphasis here. Key idea in this whole context, he humbled himself. And by the way, when you're God, who can humble you? Well, no one, but he could humble himself, Right? He did this to himself. He humbled himself. He could do it. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have said, I'm done with this foolishness. No, no, no. Uh, he humbled himself and he took it. He put himself in the, in the lower position. And this implies choice, by the way. Uh, it's one thing to be humbled. It's another thing to humble yourself. And that's what Christ did here. Uh, he humbled himself. Biblical humility is not to devalue yourself, but to lower yourself. It is to stoop to serve the good of others. It is to submit to the authority in lowly service of others. Pride is self-oriented. Humility is others-centered. Pride lifts up self. Humility lifts up others. You see, there's a whole mindset uh, behind what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ here as he humbled himself. And notice, in his humbling himself, there was an obedience involved and became obedient to the point of death. Willing to, okay, how far do we take this? Well, to the point of death. The experience of humility was one in which Jesus grew. He was always obedient, but it took him ever deeper in terms of lowering himself and submitting to God's will until it climaxed in death. True humility is costly. It will cost uh, you your self-centered will. And we see it was a learning process. Uh, Hebrews 5, 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, that really speaks to his humanity, right? Because as God, does God ever learn anything? You say, wow, that was a new insight. No, no, God doesn't ever learn anything. But as a man, he did learn 
obedience by the things which he suffered. And he became obedient to the point of death. Whatever he challenged, he faced, he was obedient all along the way. There never was any disobedience. But it, it grew in terms of what he experienced, what he went through, until it came to the point of death. And then it says, even the death of the cross. You know, it's one thing to die. It's another thing to die on a Roman cross. I, I don't think we appreciate a, a, the Roman cross, what, what it was all about. Uh, how degrading was the Roman cross? Well, for one thing, you were crucified naked. We sanitize it, you know. We don't see Christ naked on crosses, on crucifixes, you know. We don't see that. We sanitize it a little bit, you know, put a little apron on him or something. None of that. I mean, the whole idea of Rome was to degrade this person to the maximum possible. And so uh, even the death of the cross, not just dying, not just being obedient to the point of death, but even the death of the cross, the most of humiliating deaths. And for the Jews, I mean, how did they see the cross? I mean, through the lens of the Old Testament. And, and what, what is a person, if they're, if they're hung, if they're hanged, they're cursed, right? This isn't the Messiah. That's not Messiah material, right? A cursed person? What? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense to the, to the Jews. The lowest of humiliation in a position of being cursed. So shameful that no Roman citizen was ever crucified on a cross. I mean, every, Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. Slaves, non-citizens, yeah, they could be crucified, but not Roman citizens. It was too degrading. No Roman citizen would ever be crucified on a Roman cross. But Jesus was. Had that lowest of positions. So shameful. Even the death of the cross. Christ's whole lifetime was characterized by obedience, but it climaxed in the humiliation of Passion Week. And in the events surrounding his death on the cross. This was prophesied most clearly in the Old Testament by David 1,000 years before the time of Christ, Psalm 22. 700 years before Christ by Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Clearly messianic, those passages. There is progression of thought here. It is a progression of downward humility. In humiliation, Christ was willing to leave the glories of heaven, which he knew as God. What a step down. Uh, He was willing to set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He was willing to assume the role of a slave, identifying himself with lowly mankind in the incarnation. He was willing to be recognized as a mere man and to be unappreciated for who he fully was. He was willing to be humiliated with death. He was willing even to experience death with no dignity by death upon a cross. This is the humble mind of Christ. Wow, uh, that's, that's a real lesson in, in humility. And uh, what an example he is. This, uh, the humiliation of Jesus is not just interesting theology, but is intended to be an example that we are to emulate. 1 Peter 2.21, To this you were called. Here's your calling, fellow Christians. Here's your calling. Uh, Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He's the ultimate example in suffering. In the example of Christ, we see him completely setting 
self aside. He had no agenda of his own. His only agenda was to do the will of the Father. His whole existence and purpose was all about others, stooping very low for the good of others. This is what godly humility is is all about. When God's people live this way, self-centered pride and selfish ambition are no longer in the way of biblical unity. Then it is no longer about self, but all about God and others. This is the great example of Jesus Christ that Paul presents to these Philippians who were so close to his heart. Well, you know, as I read through this and as I studied through this uh, today, I was thinking about Corey Ten Boom. I often think about this story that she shared. And, you know, she was, uh, of course, in a Nazi uh, concentration camp. And she says, In the concentration camp, we went through the ordeal of being stripped of all of our clothing and made to stand naked for several hours. It was more difficult, more cruel than anything else we experienced. And then she says, as I stood there, it was suddenly as if I saw Jesus at the cross. The Bible tells us they took away his garments and he hung there naked. Through my sufferings, I understood a fraction of the suffering of Jesus. And it made me so happy and thankful that I could bear my suffering. I don't care what I'm going through, what you're going through. And sometimes you go through some, some, some really hard things. And it's very humbling But it's good to put our eyes on Jesus Christ, the ultimate example for us, uh, to to put our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, He is the ultimate example of humility, of humbling himself. You know, whatever God allows us to go through, he's got a reason for it. And and maybe it's a humbling experience that God's going to use for his glory. And, And we're called to this. We're called to follow the example of Christ who suffered, who humbled himself under that, that suffering uh, for the glory of God. And as we do so, you know, I think, uh, you know, this is a great lesson as far as what should we do with our egos? You know, most, most church fights are about ego, right? It's about ego. Clash of egos. Uh, well, Christ is the great example here. He humbled himself under the authority of God. And wasn't, didn't have a self-agenda at all. It's all about doing the Father's agenda for, for the good of others. All right. Anything else as we wrap up here tonight? Okay. No church fights now, okay? <laughs> all right. Let's go ahead and share some prayer requests.